Amen. Good morning, Harvest. Good to, uh, good to be with you this morning. Good morning to our guests, and whether you've uh, joined us here in the room today or you're on the live stream or you're watching on demand this week, we're just very, very grateful that you have joined us here today. You weren't in the room, but we got, we got Megan fired a little shot at us before worship started. Did she? Yeah. Like when she, she said, was like at the start. Yeah, she said we were we were ruining we were ruining one of the Christmas songs that we sang this morning. Any of you catch it? What we changed in uh, Angels We Have Heard on High? Anybody? It's not sweetly singing, sweetly saying. That's right. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen you have to, to last week. Wa- yeah, watch next uh, yeah. last week's message. Just and ruining Christmas by being biblically true here. I don't, I don't, just I don't trying know. to correct all the errors. That was a joke. You can laugh at that. That's all right. They don't know how to take you right now. <laughs> well, listen, if you're, if you're here today and you're a believer, we hope that this series is actually reinforcing uh, your confidence in the Gospels mm-hmm. and in a God who has given us this message. If you're a sincere seeker, you're searching after truth and asking questions, that's awesome, and we're glad that you've joined us uh, for this. And again, we hope that you're going to hear some things today that would bring you even closer uh, to Christ and to belief in Him. And uh, if you're a cynic or a skeptic and you happen to be here today, maybe you were invited here, maybe you stumbled into the room, maybe you're on the live stream, and maybe you're just like someone else in your home is watching and you just happen to be in the room, we still hope that cynics and skeptics would also be persuaded by the things that we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. uh, here uh, today. So we got to start on this last Sunday. This is uh, message two of four in this series, and the series is uh, titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? We're going to go a little deeper uh, today and look at the reliability of the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth and life, and we're going to ask the question, can we believe uh, the gospels? And I'll say again that this series is based on, we want to give credit uh, to uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote Uh, This little book that just came out this year, we uh, completely ripped off the title of her book for our series, just like line those things up. Much of the content for this series is coming uh, from uh, this book. We gave them away free last week. We have more this week, so uh, you can take one per household. Uh, But I'm just going to say this now, since the majority of you probably already have one, if you have somebody that you're thinking of that would really benefit from receiving this book, uh, just go ahead and take an extra one today or an extra two and, and get those into somebody else's hand and pray that God uses it in that way. Mm-hmm. If you're watching on the live stream and you want to get a copy of the book, you can just email us at freebook at harvestberry.ca and we'll send that out by snail mail to you. Or if you happen to live in the area, you want to stop by the office this week, go ahead and do that and Yolanda would be happy to uh, put one into your hand. And you can watch last week's message, of course, it's on the website. Those of you who want to promote this series, the links are there. Just go ahead and promote that. Um, uh, go to hbc.info slash Christmas, and all of the messages are going to be there each week. This yeah. one will get uploaded this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, clarification, we are giving this book away, but we are not. We highlighted Rebecca McLaughlin's other books. Yep. We're not giving away all of her books. As much as I would love to, we're yes. not giving away all of her books. There was Just a little bit of confusion about that. A little that. bit, but that's all right. Yeah. Uh, this book right here is what we are giving away, and a uh, great book. All of her other books are great as well, available on uh, Amazon and on her website but just this book this time. Now, last week you told us that she has a new book that's coming out. That's right. Yeah, The Secular Creed. And then between last week and this week... I got it. You got it. It came. Yeah, I'm super excited to dive into it. And you came and showed it to me. I did, because I was excited about it. But you didn't order me one. I did not. No. So you like came into my office and you showed me the new book 
And I said, is that one for me? No. And you said... Nope, this is mine. You and I said, one. did you order me one? And you not. said... Nope, sorry. Christmas is coming. Did you order me one for Christmas? No. no. I didn't. Not yet, anyway. It's all right. Joyce took care of it. Oh, great. I have my coffee Joyce now. is the best. Joyce is way better than me. Anybody I, who knows Joyce would know that. There's not even an argument no, there. No, not even close. Joyce is the best. Joyce is the best. All right, so, um, so that's, we're just, we'll deal with the rest of that <laughs> later for sure. Um, but for clarification, before we get into all of this, I, we're, we're putting out this, this phrase gospel all the time. We're talking about the gospel, and I think it's important for us just to clarify exactly what we're talking about when we use the word gospel or gospels. And so when we talk about the gospel singular, we're talking about that the central message of the Word of God that leads us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. and then informs every other aspect of our lives for the rest of our lives. So we talk about a Christian being like gospel-centered, or we can talk about a church being a gospel-centered church. Mm -hmm. That's the singular use of it. That's the central message of Scripture is the gospel. When we talk about the gospels, plural, we're talking about those first four books of the New Testament, which are the, uh, in essence, the biographies of Jesus. Yep. And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. And when we talk about one of those in the singular, the Gospel of, we'll always add the name of the author, the Gospel of Matthew, to refer specifically uh, to that. And the question that we have today is, can we believe those four Gospels, right, as we have yep. them? And, and before we dive into that question, I saw this uh, tweet this week that kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit. You know, we're talking about this series here at Christmas, and, and Matt Smethurst tweeted this, the greatest threat to Christmas is not secularism or consumerism but our own boredom with the most magnificent story ever told. Yeah. And how true is that? Yeah. And how quickly do we fall into that? That this just becomes commonplace to us. That this story does not get the sort of magnificent place that it ought to in our lives. And you know, this morning, we're talking about content that doesn't necessarily specifically relate to the nativity story. We're talking about the Gospels as a whole and how we can rely on them. But this still relates and it's critically important that we start here at an understanding that the Gospels are true and that they are reliable, and the story contained in them of the coming of Christ to this world is the most amazing story ever told. Absolutely. So that gets us to our first question we want to deal with here. How did we get the Gospels? How did these four, because they're ancient texts, yep. they're 2,000 years old approximately. Yeah, that's right. So how do we get the Gospels? How do we get these four biographies of Jesus, how'd they come to right. us? Right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first yeah. four books of the New Testament. We've established already they are the historical accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the way that, we, that they were originally trans, translated, given to people, would have been through word of mouth, actually. Yeah. No, no, um, no print media back then, formally. Right. There were letters and things like that, but no formal print media, no, no YouTube to post sermons, right? right? There was no social media, no 24-hour news cycle. It was all through something that we now call oral tradition. That's how we got the gospel. So after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the stories of the person and work of Jesus would have been proclaimed, told over and over again in the various places that people gathered together, in, in households, in marketplaces, in synagogues, all throughout the area that Jesus taught and ministered by not just those closest to Jesus, but by the thousands of people that his teaching impacted. Hmm. The thousands of people who would have heard his 
preaching. But of course, the 12 closest to him who had the firsthand perspective and insight into what he taught, why it was important, etc., were specifically tasked with proclaiming it to the world and upholding the truth as to what had happened. And they would, of course, been consulted had anything any questions come up to the validity of what was being spread. Right, and these, like, we keep talking about witnesses, and these yeah. witnesses are so critical to authenticating the text and, right. and helping us have uh, a really good sense that they're reliable. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you think about Jesus, even his commission right. in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses, he said. Mm-hmm. So it was so important that people had seen these events and recorded these events yeah. for us. Yeah, talked about it, And we're it, going to come course. back to that, obviously. That's right. And then, of course, after it was you know, spread via word of mouth, at some point in time, the, the Gospels were written, recorded in word form, in written form, sometime after the death of Christ, perhaps, as it's been suggested by some scholars, because those eyewitnesses had begun to die out. So they decided, we need to make sure that we have these things recorded. And uh, that's when the authors would have compiled the stories and recorded them into what we have now as the Gospels. And in fact, Luke talks about that specifically in his Gospel. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, here it is, delivered them to us. Those eyewitnesses would have proclaimed it via word of mouth. They would have taken those stories, compiled it, written them into the Gospels. Which, which because today. Luke was not an eyewitness. That's right. Like he came along later, was a companion of Paul's. Yes, and, exactly. Yes. Exactly. And so while the exact dating of when we got the Gospels is difficult to pinpoint exactly, uh, the writing of the Gospels goes something like this. We've got a chart here for you. It's, it's widely accepted that the Gospel of Mark would have been the first Gospel written and recorded. Mark was a companion of Peter, and his Gospel would have been compiled based on the preachings of Peter sometime in the 50 to 60 AD range. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew followed closely after that, just a few years shortly after, uh, using Mark's Gospel and and other sources as his foundation for writing and recording his Gospel. Luke then, who we've talked about already, Paul's companion, right, you mentioned, compiled his Gospel and the book of Acts shortly thereafter, two volumes, right? And then uh, following uh, that would have been the Gospel of John several years later. So about, just so we're clear, crucifixion, resurrection, and then 20 to 30 years yep. later, the Gospels are being written. That's correct. Yeah, yeah that's correct. And, and each Gospel had a, a very specific audience that they were writing to, and that impacted how and, and what they wrote about. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But you've got that copy of that chart in the sermon notes portion at hbc.info. Also, there is the source for where we got that chart. ESV.org did a phenomenal breakdown of, of all the New Testament history and encourage you to look through that at some point. Right, and the ESV well. is the translation of the scriptures that we use. That's right. And if you go online and you're accessing the content that ESV.org has or the ESV Study Bible, there's so much mm-hmm. there that can help you work through all of this even as you're reading the text. Notes are there and everything is right. so yep. if you have access to, uh, to the Study Bible portion. So that's good. So skeptics and challengers to the validity of the Gospels, they've all raised objections even to what you've said uh, yeah. so far. And, and most famously, maybe today, would be um, an atheist by the name of Richard Dawkins, which I think a lot of people would even know mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins' name. Uh, of course, Bart uh, Ehrman, who we talked about uh, last week, who's agnostic, yep. a New Testament scholar, but doesn't believe in God. And they liken both of them, Ehrman and Dawkins, both liken the development of the Gospels to the telephone game. Do you remember the telephone game, playing that when you were kids? The Broken telephone. Broken telephone yeah. game where one person, there's a whole line of people, one person is given a message, then they pass it on by whisper to the next person all the way down, and then whoever the like 10th or 20th person is, they're supposed to say what they said, and it's never the same. Right. 
So both Ehrman and Dawkins say that that's what getting the, the New Testament was like, that it was a game of broken telephone. Because of the oral tradition, right? And because of the oral tradition. It's been yeah. passed down, passed down. So, yeah. the, so the big question is, we've already talked about the fact it was crucifixion, resurrection, 20 to 30 years, Gospels yep. are written. Mm-hmm. Was the time lag just too long, and yeah. did it compromise the reliability of the Gospels? That's yeah, a great question. And, and the telephone game comparison could be acceptable if we were talking about a handful of people that were translating this tradition down orally. But of course, there were thousands of people who at least in part sat under Jesus' teaching or saw at least one of his miracles. So the sheer number of people who could confirm or corroborate the accounts of the Gospels is staggering. And, of course, if there was any question as to the validity of the Gospels, the apostles were still around by this point in time, and they would be able uh, to clarify. And unlike the telephone game, these accounts weren't whispered from person to person. These were proclaimed publicly. They were taught publicly. It was in the synagogues. It was in public places. So it wasn't a secret. And then on top of that, the Gospels of Luke and the Gospel of John both have explicit references to themselves as authors. John, in his Gospel, this is chapter 21, verse 24, says, this is the disciple. John likes to refer to himself as the third person. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And so in saying that, like, to come back to the telephone game for a second, John saying that would be like sitting a bunch of people down to play the telephone game, but instead of John whispering that phrase to the next person, he just stands up and tells everybody explicitly and proclaims it out loud. That would ruin the game. It ruins the game, exactly. There's, yeah, no fun, John, but in this case, it's important because the truth comes directly from the source. Right. And that's critical for us as it pertains to the Gospels, right? Now, the question about time lag, to come back to that for a second. So, so let me just say, so, sure. so Dawkins and Ehrman, yep. with their telephone, broken telephone game, that illustration just flat out does not work. Does not work. Absolutely right. Okay. And then, so to come back to the question about time lag, right, 20 to 30 years between the resurrection and the actual recording of the Gospels, uh, the answer to this one is quite simple. Well, we may not remember all of the important, explicit details of an event, we remember important moments, do we Mm -hmm, not? mm -hmm. The marriage of a family member, right? You may not remember exactly what you were wearing that day, but you remember the moment. Uh, The birth of your child, right? You don't necessarily remember the doctor's name, but you remember the moment that your child came into the world. Graduations or other significant family events or even events in world history. I mean, like for you, You don't remember the exact t-shirt you were wearing the day your family left Montreal, but you remember the moment and you talk about it over and over and over and over again. Something you want to say to me? Not at all. Not at all. I'm a proud Montrealer. What can I say? That's fine. I'm just making the point. Because while we may not... I hear you. Because while we may not remember... This is now two things we have to talk about. Okay, that's great. We'll work it out later. Keep in track. While we may not remember exactly everything, we remember important moments. And I think if we were to consider the fact that the Son of God came from heaven, the Messiah came and taught and performed miracles, I think we could all agree that that is a pretty significant moment and one that would probably not be very easily forgotten. Yeah, right? for sure, for sure. Now, and not to mention the fact, like we're just talking about all this, but it's it's... 
it, it was common practice in, in the ancient cultures to memorize everything. Mm -hmm. They just, if you were a student and you were before a teacher, this isn't just in Israel, but this was like all over the, the ancient world. Student teacher, like the student had to memorize uh, everything. There was a, a, in the ancient cultures, it was a culture of memorization, uh, largely because people didn't own their own books. I mean, there were no books, there were only scrolls, mm -hmm. but people didn't own their own scrolls. The, the students in, in, in Israel, they would go to synagogue and they would hear the rabbi teach, but they would have to memorize that. Yeah, you'd right? get the Isaiah scroll open and you'd memorize like a full passage. Right. right. So if you wanted to know something in the ancient world, if you wanted to know something, you had to actually learn it and memorize it, yeah. not just, and this is us today, not just know where the information can be found. Right. That's us. Well, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that. I know where the information can be found. And we argue that because we've got these devices in our hands that have all the information on it, or at least accessible to us, and that has made us extremely lazy when it comes to actually learning things. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, we don't need to know anyone's phone numbers. You know, like this week, I was, uh, Jordan and I were both, we were sitting in a, in a uh, staff, staff lunch. Meeting. We were just having lunch, weren't yep. we? Yeah, just lunch. You're right. We're having lunch. Yep. And, and I wanted the phone number of one of the spouses of one of our staff members. That staff member didn't even know their spouse's phone number. I don't want to out them right now. They didn't even know their phone number. They had to check it, you know, because we don't learn anything. Hmm. And, and you know, when I was a kid, I don't know if you know this about me, but I grew up in Montreal. Proving my point, thank you. Left when I was 13 okay. for Ontario. Yep. But uh, when I was seven, we, we moved away from Montreal North, where I had uh, grown up in, in the first seven years of my life, and we were going to move out to the West Island, we were going to move to the South Shore, and then we moved to Ontario. But I remember all the phone numbers. Like, my first phone number before I was seven was 3214277. I just remember it. I know all those phone numbers. Because we locked them in our memory. We just knew them. And I, it wasn't just my phone number. I knew my best friend's phone number. I knew my, both my grandparents' phone numbers. I knew, you know, I knew the pizza place because there was only one. You know, you know the pizza phone number. You, like you knew all the phone numbers. You just memorized them. And, and our, our thing today is we don't need to know any of that. So we don't actually really memorize anything at all today. We don't need to know math today because we have a calculator with us. We don't need to learn those things we argue in our mind. We don't need to know the Bible because we're carrying it around with us. I mean, in a, in a previous generation, like we just taught kids to memorize the Bible all the time because they weren't, I mean, they weren't, you're not going to carry your Bible around with you all the time. But if you stored it up in your hearts, remember that? We stored the Word of God up in our hearts, so we always had it available to us. And now we just say, you know what, there's an app for that. And we don't know the Bible at all. So we're not memorizing anything. We're not learning anything. We don't really have anything. And as I said a few weeks ago, you know, at least our phones are smart. Now think about it for a second. You'll get it. At least our phones are smart. Because we're starting to become a really dumb generation. Now listen, back to the point. The passing on of stories, this oral tradition that we're talking about, was not like the broken telephone game, because oral tradition, as, it, as, as we call it, this tradition, took care to tell the story accurately. You had to. So the person telling the story was so rigid in the details they were given as it had been passed on to them, so they could pass it on to the next generation. They had to tell the story accurately from memory, 
And they did it in the presence of many others who also knew the story to guarantee its faithfulness to the original events. And so that's all really critical for yep. us to understand in here. Let me press it a little further. Let me give you this question now. If we can agree that they're reliable, that they came to us in a reliable way, that the oral tradition was, that the lag wasn't a problem, yep. um, but weren't the stories like intentionally exaggerated? It's a good question, and I think that um, I think that most men and anybody who likes to fish can can get this question, <laughs> because the further that you get from a story, the more the details tend to be, you know, a little exaggerated. Right. right? A week away from it, the fish was this big. A month away, the fish was this. You know what I'm saying? Right? Years down the road, it's the biggest fish that was ever Perhaps. taken out of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. By the way, this is one of the ways smartphones help us because right. when you snap the picture of the fish, you can't you embellish evidence. the story. Exactly, right. exactly. So uh, this this question of of were the gospels just exaggerated again actually comes back to Richard Dawkins, who who made the point to say that that young and passionate followers of Jesus didn't check the truths of the story that they were telling, but as they told it, you know, month over month and year over year, they begin to exaggerate little details here and there. They began to, to in order to make the story more incredible, began to, you know, fudge on the details a little bit, mm. right? And so then Dawkins would say that they moved Jesus from just a charismatic teacher to all of a sudden becoming the son of God as they exaggerated here and there. But Let's consider the reality of a few aspects of the Gospels and the history surrounding them for a moment as we seek to answer this question. First, I think any follower of Jesus can agree on this point. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is his most amazing miracle, bar none. No, no disputing. No disputing that, right? It is his most amazing miracle. And so for Dawkins, and if his theory is correct... A teacher raising himself from the dead would be something that would come much later as the story continues to be told year over year. You're not going to start an exaggeration with, you know, a man raising himself from the dead. That's going to come as you, you know, build upon the exaggeration right. a little bit. But documentation about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is seen as early as two years after the event. So the gospel's written... 20 to 30 years later, but Correct. we have evidence of the resurrection. Just two years after two the years event after. happened, right? The Gospels, of course, were written, as you mentioned, later than many New Testament books, written later than most of Paul's letters to the various churches that he wrote to. And Paul's letters included creeds, confessions of faith, and different hymns of the early church. One of the most significant examples, actually, is 1 Corinthians 15. This is verses 3 to 7, where Paul writes, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that's important, mm -hmm. here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles. And if you look at the original language, that is very, very technical terminology that Paul is using there. That is evidence that this was a creed that was established in the early church long before Paul even wrote these letters, long before the Gospels were written. It could have existed, in fact, as early as A.D. 32 to A.D. 35. That's just, again, years after the resurrection of Christ. So it could have existed as early as two years after the event and even as late as 
30 years after the event. As we understand that it's not exact, we're not exactly able to pinpoint the date specifically, but remember the principle that we established last, last week. That is the earlier that you have writings to the event, the more reliable they are. And so whether this creed of the church was written two years after or 30 years after or anywhere in between, the evidence, that is unprecedented evidence for the reliability of the Gospels as historical documents. And not just the Gospels as historical documents, but the New Testament as historical document. And not only the New Testament as a historical document, but Scripture as a whole, right? Yeah, so forgive me for just keep going over this, but, yeah, yeah. but crucifixion, resurrection, within a couple of years, creeds are starting to be written. Yep, confessions of faith, doctrinal statements, yeah. Then Paul writes his letters. Yep. And then within 20 to 30 years, we have the Gospels. That's right. That's kind of the order of how things played out here. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we're also kind of along the way reading The Case for Christmas, Lee Strobel's excellent book, and uh, Craig Blomberg, who he's interviewing and who I quoted last week as well. Um, this is in The Case for Christmas. You know, that conversation is so compelling around this idea about the creeds and the fact that they were being written so early that they were being repeated and used in worship, mm-hmm. and they were repeating for everyone or affirming for everyone the reality of the, of the crucifixion and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And this was, was so necessary because, again, no printed Bible, okay, no way to store information. So unless you're passing it along in a way that everybody understands and can memorize, then it's not going to get locked in the way that it really needs to be locked in. And so, uh, so they, they wrote these creeds, these doctrinal statements that they could make. Mm-hmm. And again, 1 Corinthians 15 that Jordan just read, that's one of those creeds. But there's at least a couple of more that Paul cites in two of his other letters. And these are two like phenomenally beautiful passages. And again, coming to, a, as, as George said, like a very technical kind of original language. Like the Greek is very beautiful, very crafted. It's not just a letter, mm-hmm. though Paul's including it in his letter. So one example um, is Philippians 2, 6 to 11. Maybe these words will be familiar to you. Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it goes on and on. It's a beautiful passage about the incarnation, about the humility of Christ. It's a creed. It would have been something that before Paul's writing Philippians, which is before the Gospels were written, this creed was already in circulation. Paul had learned it. He includes it here in Philippians. Yep. Another one is in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Again, just a, a piece of it. Mm-hmm. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This high, high Christology, this view of Christ, this very vertical passage. Again, Paul's including in his letter, but it's a creed. It's, mm-hmm. it's so carefully crafted and formed that it was something the church had prior. And these are all established by the time Paul is writing. And again, he wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. The whole idea of the resurrection and who Jesus was, was so well developed from the very earliest days after the resurrection. And remember, we're, we're trying to answer this question of, are, are the Gospel stories just exaggerated? And had, it, had they been exaggerated, you wouldn't have seen that sort of documentation about the resurrection as early as we do see it. But another good answer to this is the fact that the the accounts of the Gospels didn't make the apostles very popular, <laughs> and I feel like that's an understatement, yeah. right? I mean, all but one of them were, were martyred for their faith. Yeah, and, and, the, and, and he was in exile. The last one was in yeah. exile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, many 
other Christians in the first century faced persecution and death, not to mention the many other believers who have faced persecution and death even in our history up until this point. And, and it defies logic that anyone would make something up and hold to it so vehemently that they'd be willing to risk their reputation or even their life. Right. Right? And then thirdly, another good answer to this question is that, that the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, considering the way that his life and ministry ended, would have been absolutely preposterous for the Jews of the first century. And McLaughlin summarizes this idea for us in this way. There were plenty of freedom fighters trying to raise an army against Roman rule, and they tended to end the same way, executed on Rome's bloodiest instrument, torture. Now, death on a cross spelled either the end of the movement or transfer of leadership to another candidate. Claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead and that people should continue to follow him was outrageous. Simply put, you wouldn't make this stuff up. Right, and going back to 1 Corinthians 15 again, which we keep coming back to that mm-hmm. amazing passage, it's just interesting how Paul goes out of his way to list names of people, right. and, and then this whole group of 500 people who saw him at the same time. Not to time. mention the Gospels do the same thing, right? They mention people explicitly, hey, you don't believe this? Well, go ask Mary Magdalene. She would right, have been around. Right, because she saw it. Yeah, Because she, she was it. an actual exactly. eyewitness to this thing. And so, so you have all these witnesses, and I, and I know that today even, we have people who are martyrs who will die for a cause. Right. Like We all acknowledge that, totally. not just for Christianity. I mean, there are people who will die for their cause, but they are not eyewitnesses of their cause. And, and so the point that Jordan made here, which is so important for us to see, is that no one will die for an intentional fabrication. No one's going to die for a lie. In other words, these apostles didn't sit, sit around and go, you know what, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We're going to tell people that he did. And then we're going to be willing to die for that. Like, I'd be out of the room. There's no way I'd buy into dying for a lie. And this wasn't a lie, and they were willing to die for it because they had seen the resurrected Christ. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them were killed. And many, many, many suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, for this message about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And throughout it all, they stuck to their story. Now, some of you, if you're into political history or you're like my age, you know, or older, um, you're going to remember the Watergate story from the early 70s. And in the, in the early 70s, Richard Nixon had been elected president in the United States. He's a Republican. And it became discovered after he took office that there had been a break-in at the Democratic headquarters and that Republican officials had authorized wiretapping, uh, bugging the phones in the Democratic headquarters. The whole thing came out. Um, Senior officials in the Nixon administration were sent to prison for that. Richard Nixon himself was compelled uh, to resign. Among those who were senior government officials was a man named Charles Colson. He went to jail for his part in the Watergate scandal. Colson came to faith in Jesus Christ while he was in prison and came out and became an incredible evangelist and founded the organization of Prison Fellowship, one of our partners. And so many thousands and thousands of people have come to faith in Christ as a result of Colson's ministry afterward. And so Colson, who's now with the Lord, but he said this, speaking of the resurrection and Watergate and kind of bringing these two things together, he said this, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone is beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And I know, I know that Colson's making a point there, and it's a great point, but it's not even just that 12 people kept their story straight or testified to it. Right. Like, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Amazing. Yeah. Right? Amazing. So, it's, yeah, it is amazing for sure. So, all right. Even if they're reliable because the leg isn't there or they're not exaggerated, exaggerated yep. could we not ask this question, aren't the Gospels biased? Sure. Sure, it's a good question, and, and without wanting to sound too flippant about this, all history is biased. Right. All history is biased, right? The historian is always interpreting and, and choosing material, crafting it around a central message. There is no history that is just simply a dissemination of facts, right? Right. right. And the very choosing of, of which facts and events to talk about and what is reported about them is biased. Right. right, and 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 a great example of that is is when when the histories of wars are written, it's yep. always the victor. This is the saying: is the mm-hmm. victors write the history books? Right, like the winners write the history books. The losers don't get to tell their side of the story. That's right, right. exactly. And and I mean, another great example of this would actually be if we're looking biblically for a second. Um, if you compare the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, with First and Second Chronicles, which are written about the same time period. Right, for all those right? people who like have done the reading through the Bible, and then you get to Chronicles and go, I just read all of this. Yeah. Why am I reading this again? Yeah. Right, that's Chronicles. Yeah, exactly. But so there's a reason for that. There is a reason for that. It, while they cover the same time period, Samuel and Kings are written before the exile of, the, of God's people. Chronicles is written after, right? And so the chronicler used the events of the exile to inform what he was going to include in his history, and he, of course, wrote with the advantage of hindsight. Right, right, right. absolutely. And so the Gospels are biased, because all history is biased, but that's not a problem. Right, so the Gospels are not an objective history. Yeah. They're selective, and I remember one of my professors saying these are, these are theological histories. If you want right. to call them a history, they're theological histories. Mm. And as you pointed out earlier, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write to different audiences. Therefore, they include different information based on who they're writing to. Right. And that, in part, answers the question of why the Gospels are so different from one another. And, and to further that point, the Gospels also don't claim to be an exhaustive history. Right. Right? They're not, they're not claiming to be a complete account of everything that happened in the life and work in ministry of Jesus. In fact, John, at the end of his gospel, says, this is 20, chapter 21, verse 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right, right. And by the way, John doesn't include the nativity story, which you would think is an important thing to add in so, his gospel. So I've been giving that more thought, because last week I said that Matthew and Luke only have nativity stories, and Mark and John don't, and then I was like, back to John 1 and kind of thinking about John 1 again, and John 1 is this beautifully crafted right. passage. Mm-hmm. It has echoes of Genesis 1 in it, but it, it, literally this is what it says. This is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right. and then speaking directly into the incarnation, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, that that sounds like a Christmas verse to me, all right? And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, so 
We'll bend to your superior wisdom on that one. Only Mark. <laughs> only Mark doesn't have a nativity You can't make story. up for those other two things, you know. <laughs> I'm still, yeah. So, so that's a great answer to why are the Gospels so different. But to go a little bit further on this, you know, the Gospels are different from one another in terms of, of what they include about the life of Jesus. Some of them even differ on, on how they choose to tell the events in the order that they tell the events. But the four Gospels really operate together Mm -hmm. as a complement of one another to bring to us the important themes of the life of Jesus. They they don't act on their own. They are harmonizing together to bring the life of Jesus to us. Right, and and I'll add this. The Gospels can sometimes record different sayings or different um, events in different orders, uh, different wording on, on things, and people can often take that as a challenge to their reliability. Like, why do... Why do Mark and Luke like record this differently? Why does it sound like a different story when you know it is the same story? Mm-hmm. Um, but but you and I both know, and anyone else who's ever preached, uh, you know, like you know, if we, if we get invited to preach in Muskoka or Newmarket or you know somewhere else, um, we take a message we've already preached here and we'll like adapt it or change it and preach it in this new spot. And when we when we do that, we mix things up a little bit for the audience in the sense that, right. you know, if, it, if there was an illustration that was very Barry specific, we would change that for New Market, preaching sure. in York Region or preaching up in Muskoka. We would just change that up. We might change the wording on something a little bit, like especially if I go to Scotland, I'm preaching at Harvest Glasgow, I might like just change things up a little bit right. to contextualize it and bring it to that particular uh, audience. And that's not just preachers, right? I mean, like, you know, politicians and, and presenters. Yeah, I wouldn't they... use politicians as a positive example. Like, they intentionally say things that are absolutely contradictory <laughs> from one region of the country to the other. Needless to say, is that all, fair? All yeah, of yeah. them. Not, not politicians. All of them change up, even the way <laughs> they give the exact same presentation based on their context, right? Right. And, and so that's important for us to recognize that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're contradictory. They're just presenting it in a different way. And, and, that, and then that also translates very easily into us bringing some clarity to the fact that the gospel sometimes move through the events of Jesus' life in different order. And, you know, are we not used to, to people telling things with not, you know, perfect chronology? Right? This, I mean, this is, this is one of the, the ways that, you know, science fiction movies Love become science fiction, science fiction yeah. movies. Right? Like yeah. The greatest science fiction movies aren't told in perfect chronology. Things like, I'm going to geek out here for a second, forgive me. Like, like the great science fiction movies like Arrival and Interstellar, mm. right? And, so, and if we're talking about everything have to, having to be in perfect chronology, and that would ruin the Star Wars series, right? right. Three, four, five, and then one, two, three. I mean, that we, should, we shouldn't even be talking about one, two, and three. They were Fair so point. awful. Fair point, right? But this idea of, of you know, flashbacks even in the midst of a movie, right? That, or in a book. These are, these are strategies that we Well, this use. is also how you keep a beloved character alive because right. they can die. Totally. But they can come back. Exactly. exactly. Not Jesus, but like Luke. Right. Skywalker, not the gospel guy. There you go. Right? Yep. Always bring that guy back. He does. That's right. And this is a common technique used in in all different kinds of media for us to be able to draw connections to what has happened in the past, to what is happening in the present. And the gospel writers employ that idea. And the fact that the gospels don't completely sync up in their timelines does not make them invalid. Right. Now, address the fact that specifically John's gospel is so different than the other three. So, like, mm-hmm. I think we would agree, anybody who's read the four gospels will know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke generally follow a similar pattern. seems yep. very factual. I'm just going to kind of present what happened. Yep. And you get to John, and a lot of people say, you know, the first three are 
um, are, are factual. John is theological. Sure. John's very theological is, sure. what, is what you hear. Yeah, yeah. So John carries a decidedly different tone in his writing than the other three Gospels. They call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels, right? right. Like synoptic synopsis, right? Whereas as John is a little bit different. I mean, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. His, his Gospel carries more emotion. It's more reflective rather than descriptive. And just in case you aren't fully aware, I mean, John is, is missing some of the important elements of Jesus' life, like uh, his temptation, for example, not in, in John's Gospel, his transfiguration, not in John's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. But he's also added some amazing aspects of the life of Jesus, like his ministry in Galilee, John 2-4, to in his early ministry. Well, or the, uh, the Upper Room Discourse from John the farewell thir- discourse. 13 That's through right. 17 That's is right. incredible. Lazarus' resurrection, John 11, right? He's added, added those things as well. And, and John really emphasizes the identity of Jesus as God's Son. He goes after some more core theological principles in his teaching, and that's mostly because the church at the time of John's writing of his gospel was facing some pretty tough heresy that was, that was rising up in the church that John needed to, to write against. Again, he wrote this like 20 to 30 years after the, yeah. la- the other gospel. That's right. So he's got far more perspective on what's going on exactly. in the church toward the end of the first century. Yeah, so he has a different yeah. purpose in writing than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did, and, and something that the church needed that was different for the time. And, and to come back to Craig Blomberg for a second, he summed it up in this way. Lee Strobel quotes him in The Case for Christmas. He says, I don't believe John is more theological. He just has a different cluster of theological emphases. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each have very distinctive theological angles that they want to highlight. Luke, the theologian of the poor and of social concern. Matthew, the theologian trying to understand the relationship of Christianity and Judaism. Mark, who shows Jesus as the suffering servant. You can make a long list of the distinctive theologies of Matthew Mark and Luke. And so it's not that John was more theological than the other three. They're just as theological. And this comes back to the idea that we're trying to make here, that the Gospels work together to bring to us the life and the work of Jesus and to bring it into full view for us. And very reliably so. That's right. All right, we're going to really wrap it it up for this week on that point. And, And again, the beauty of all of this should be so evident as we're working through the Gospels, and I think Jordan and I would both just, he's going to say, you know, more in just a moment, we would just like to really encourage you to read the Gospels this week. Take some time, mm-hmm. pick one of the Gospels, and just determine you're going to read through it uh, this week, because there's nothing like reading it over and over again and hearing what Jesus taught and what Jesus did and how people responded to that, the way he about, went about his life. I think we would all agree if we're reading other biographies, other ancient biographies, other modern biographies, you know, what we see is a, is a person who is so compelling, so much more compelling than anyone else that you could ever read about. That's what the Gospels give us. And speaking, the Apostle Peter here, speaking of Jesus in the context of you and I imitating him, especially in his suffering. Peter wrote this in his first letter. And understand, this is Peter writing, who experienced walking with Jesus and hearing him teach, who experienced like victories and, and a lot of defeats that are recorded in the scriptures. He has no shame about sharing those, how he missed what Jesus was doing in the moments, but he saw it all. So writing from first-hand experience, he writes this in his letter. Speaking of Jesus, he said he committed no sin. Like imagine walking with someone and seeing them for three and a half years and, and realizing that though there was many, many, many times that he could have been tempted to sin, he never did. 
And just seeing that and remarking it and being drawn to it. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He just never lied. Everything he said was truth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. If someone says something about me that I don't like, I don't like it. I get angry. I can get vindictive. I could say something back. If I don't say something to them, I can harbor really bad thoughts about them. I could go and talk to someone else about them. You can't believe what so-and-so just did to me. I mean, that happened to me last week. But Peter watched Jesus' life for three and a half years. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then he gives the gospel. Here it is, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. For he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How does that not just like excite you to hear that again? No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but, now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's no one like him. And as Matt Smethers said, that quote that Jordan gave us off the top, this is the most magnificent story ever told. So if you're a skeptic here this morning, if you're watching online, if you're watching this on demand later, if you're an unbeliever in the room, I mean, there's really nothing to lose by reading the gospel. You know, Richard Dawkins, an atheist himself, read the Bible. Bart Ehrman read the Bible. In fact, it's his job as yeah. a New Testament so we would encourage you, we would love it, if you took up the challenge to read the Gospels and to see Jesus in these pages. Well, um, again, just let me remind you about the book. Um, you can grab a free one on your way out today. And again, if you're watching online, uh, just let us know at the office, free book at harvestberry.ca or stop by the office this week and uh, pick one up. We'd love to get that into your hand. Take an extra one, give it to somebody else and pray that God uses it in their life. Next week, I mean, we're just going to keep digging in deeper and deeper here. Uh, we mentioned already, Jordan mentioned already that the resurrection is like the top drawer, you know, most spectacular miracle of all time. And uh, we're going to look at the miracles uh, in the Gospels and talk about those and specifically focusing in on the virgin birth. Yeah. Jesus was really born of a virgin. Mm -hmm. And we're going to look at that next week. So let me pray for us right now and uh, then we'll be on our way today. Father, what an incredible privilege it is for us to, again, to be able to sit under the hearing of your word, to be able to open the gospels and the letters of Paul and, and the scriptures to hear what you've written to us so that we would know. God, we're privileged, we're blessed to hear this most magnificent story ever told. And I pray, God, that you would be working in each of our hearts, God, for those here who are believers, that we would walk away strengthened, encouraged, built up in our faith, for having rehearsed again these beautiful truths from your word. God, for those in the room who are searchers and seekers, who are asking sincere questions, 
Father, I pray that you would bring them further along today. That they would be asking more questions. Getting close to surrendering their life to Christ, Father. By your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself. And God, I do pray for those cynics and skeptics and unbelievers who are watching, who are here in the room. God, you can break through the hard shell. You can answer all the questions. You can melt away the doubt, the cynicism, the skepticism. Father, you can draw anyone you want to faith in Christ. And so God, I pray that that would happen. I pray it would happen today. I pray it would happen this week. I pray it'll happen in the next two weeks as we continue to look at this material. That the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ would be transforming lives and saving those who are as yet still lost. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for the privilege that we've had to gather together like this. We pray in Jesus' name.